Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today I have the editor-in-chief of Reason, Catherine Mangu Ward. Catherine started at Reason as an intern in 2000, and she has worked at the Weekly Standard and the New York Times. She's a frequent contributor on radio and television networks and is a graduate of Yale University, where she received a BA in philosophy and political science. Thank you for joining us, Catherine. Delighted to be here. So I want to have you on talk a little bit about journalism. I don't know how to be a journalist. I'm not a journalist. I took one class like 20 years ago in college, and the I, I remember one single thing. It was to make sure you know how to pronounce your guest's name right, because it can be very embarrassing if you don't. That, that's all. literally all I remember about journalism. And I am endlessly fascinated with the way Reason has covered the news, both the good and the bad. And I wanted to sort of get get a conversation with you so that we can talk about like what what can we as people interested in liberty advocating for liberty expect from like the news and then also a little bit of the, you know a little bit about reason but let's start with your bio uh how did you get involved at reason well your one journalism class is one more than uh, the journalism instruction i have received so i think you're the <laughs> more qualified journalist on this podcast today on paper uh, yeah. <laughs> I uh, I started at Reason, as you mentioned, as an intern uh, when I was an undergrad. Uh, I worked on a student paper, not the uh, storied Yale Daily News, but a scrappy tabloid that we put together <laughs> in a weekend sort of for fun. Yeah. And, uh, and that put me on the path to being the editor-in-chief of a scrappy libertarian magazine that we put together on the weekend, sort of for fun. No, it's a little bit more of a serious operation around here. Yeah, yeah. A little bit more. Uh, <laughs> there's a little scrappiness to it there's that, a certain that works amount of really well. We, yeah. we, we try to stay, uh, stay scrappy, though I, I have been interested. So one of the things that comes with being an editor-in-chief, if you so desire, is that you can go to uh, and be a part of various professional organizations. Um, the you know, the biggest event of the year from from my perspective is the the judging for the National Magazine Awards, the Ellie's. And one thing that I'm really struck by when I go to these events now is that reason is not as scrappy as we think of ourselves uh, mm. being that we are actually our our journalism staff is about 35. And that's pretty big these days for a magazine. Um, obviously, can't hold a candle to your various New York Times is and mm -hmm, Washington right. Posts, but for a magazine of political opinion, we're pretty we're pretty big, and a lot of that is because we do a tremendous amount of work in video, which we're very proud of, um, substantive interviews, documentaries, and um, sort of humor, satire videos, which um, is a little bit unusual for a magazine of our size. Yeah, well, you have something for everybody. Whether they they may not be a magazine reader subscriber, right? Well, we, you can definitely consume us in your Twitter feed on Reason dot com, in your Facebooks, in your YouTubes, in your podcasts. We are everywhere you want to be, and and all those places. Our goal is to kind of talk about and think about the world through the lens of free minds and free markets, which has been our motto uh, for more than fifty years. 
and our our worldview is libertarian, but we hope that we are talking to people um, beyond just those who identify as libertarians. Mm-hmm. We're always looking to reach out to and talk to people who maybe agree with us on some issues and not others. Uh, as a libertarian mm-hmm. yourself, you know that oh yeah, you can you got to make your friends where you can find them. And uh, so we try to produce content that doesn't assume. If you are there for the criminal justice reform, you also want to, you know, end the Fed and legalize heroin. Right. Like we, you know, we can we can <laughs> meet people where they are and and hopefully make content that appeals to them. Yeah, yeah. What got you into being a journalist? Like, what, what, why your interest in this sort of field? Absolutely by accident. There are some people, uh, even some people on Reasons staff, who are born and bred journalists, people who just have this instinct to tell a story in writing, uh, want to kind of, you know, reach people's hearts and minds that way. For me, it was sort of a way to get to talk to interesting people, think about interesting things, and then turn that into something that people would pay me for. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think that uh, in a lot of ways, you know, my advice to younger journalists is always, not to go to journalism school, not to focus on journalism exclusively up front, but to learn something at school, use your school years to accumulate mental frameworks, information, Mm -hmm. timelines, and then take that with you into journalism where it's much better to learn by doing. And that was certainly my experience. I mean, I had a bunch of internships in addition to the Reason Internship, and worked on my school paper, as I said, but it really was, you know, the amount that I learned in the first three months on the job at the Weekly Standard after I graduated is more than I could have picked up at journalism school, I'm quite sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's been sort of my experience that the things that you love to do and you keep coming back to and and you involve yourself in, in our world today, it's a lot easier to sort of go into that field uh, because you want to, not because it's some skill you develop. Yeah. And I also... like on paper. I also think, you know, the thing about journalism school is that they are by and large looking to train up a certain type of of journalist. And that is the kind of the New York Times journalist, right? Like that's the, mm-hmm. you know, if you're graduating from Columbia Journalism School, for a lot of people, that's the end game. Not everyone. And they do have multimedia and all kinds of other uh, mm-hmm. programs there. But um, the idea of doing what I do, what we do at Reason, which is journalism that is reported and fair and fact-based and um, and outward-looking, but still written with a point of view, with a, with a bias toward libertarianism, with a bias toward stories about how government is bad for human flourishing, with a bias toward stories about how human freedom leads to good ends. Um, and that project, that way of doing journalism doesn't necessarily sit easily with what you would learn at a journalism school or in a mm-hmm. journalism program uh, at a traditional liberal arts school. And I think even people who might start out with that kind of an idea get talked out of it. And that's not always that's not always the best outcome for them. Yeah. yeah I like, you know, covering covering the issues of human flourishing are, of course, important to my organization um, because we want to see people understand the world around them and what's happening. I mean, you know, you're probably well aware that people think the world's getting worse and it's really not. It's getting way better. Um, so, you know, there's that aspect of things. I, I have a slight aside question I want to ask. And what you worked at the Weekly Standard and my mental picture is you and Bill Crystal in the same office. And what was that like? It was awesome. 
uh, your mental picture okay. is probably accurate. Again, not a huge office. Uh, I was a not terribly savvy 21-year-old when I started at that job and uh, didn't really occur to me to go in soft with the libertarianism. Right. Like I had read the Weekly Standard and I had been raised up. You know, my my college experience was very much in the fusionist tradition. Um, the idea that libertarians and conservatives are natural allies, that they are more likely than not in 20th century and 21st century American politics to work together. Um, I think that idea is now breaking down, to be honest, um, and maybe had already broken down substantially before I graduated. But I didn't know that. So I rolled into Washington, D.C., rolled into the front door of the Weekly Standard, which was at the time, I mean, this was 2002. So this was really peak neocon in the sense that we came to understand it in the run-up to and wake of the Iraq War. Um, you know, very interventionist, paired with a lot of caution about um, biotech and um, social change, a lot of kind of Robert Putnam, you know, no bowling alone, civil society stuff. Um but still the remnants of Republicans who said small government is good and drown it in a right. bathtub and Newt Gingrich was still sort of lurking somewhere in the periphery and all that. <laughs> and so I just showed up and said, like, hi, good morning. I'm a libertarian. And to the absolute credit of Bill Crystal and also Fred Barnes, um, as well as many others there, they took it in stride. They said, great, you can go interview this new guy from Wisconsin. His name's Paul Ryan. I hear he likes Ayn Rand. And <laughs> also they made me the fact checker, which, uh, you know, having a lightly hostile fact checker is actually your best case scenario. So um, full, yeah. full credit to Bill Crystal, who had a tremendous sense of humor about the places where we disagreed and who I have always hugely respected. I was very, very sorry to see the Weekly Standard die. Oh, okay. That's 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 a fascinating story. Um, yeah, that's a little off topic to what we're talking about, but I, I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, we, we have these like we can demonize certain organizations and yet we realize there are people that are genuinely human behind them. Yeah, that's right. And I think, yeah. you know, this is something that can be it can be done badly in Washington, right? I mean, you do hear the stories that are true of, sort of smoke-filled rooms where people who ostensibly have really substantial disagreements get together and just kind of make trades that are bad for the American people. I mean, crony capitalism, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I think the good version of it is a version where people who disagree are able to talk to each other and kind of bracket those disagreements and still talk productively about the places where they do have common ground. I mean, here I am on a Christian podcast and certainly not a Christian myself. So I'm trying to walk that walk. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about reason being at sort of like the front of the news. It, most libertarians at least know about reason. So we don't have to be like, hey, tell us who reason is. I don't have to have that conversation. You're really well known, even outside of libertarianism to, to a large extent. When I pick up, when I see an article or read a post or I get the magazine in my mailbox, um, you know, every month, you know, I read stories of both hope and movement toward more freedom. And then I also see the stories that are like shocking and disheartening and like angering. And I'm just like, how could this be? Why on earth are people doing this? You know, I see both sides. And in your shoes, you're probably thinking about what summer looks like for a reason, right? And we're, we're recording this the beginning of March. And I've just always like, I want to know what how do you strategize? How do you know what to pursue? Because there's so much out there and there's current events and then there's also the, the 
like the the culture stuff that isn't necessarily like oh here's what's happening this week um how do you how do you balance all that i mean we do actually think of it as a balancing act we think of it as you know there are people who come to us for a bunch of different types of content and we want to serve those different audiences. Uh, I am not one of these old school magazine journalists who hates the word content, as you've probably noticed, by the way. Some people are like, oh, Mm. for the days when people wrote essays and didn't think of everything as grist for the mill. Uh, It always grist for the mill, but that's okay. We're we're producing hopefully high quality stuff that uh, that people want to consume. So we try to think about both staying on top of the news cycle. So that means having reporters who are explicitly charged with covering each of the candidates in the Democratic field, for instance. Um, You know, we give everybody a beat uh, that pertains to the election, but we also have all those same writers covering something that's more um, substantial, that's going to be a beat that's less affected by the day-to-day sort of 24-hour cable news tides. And so Mm -hmm. what that means is that, for instance, we might have someone like Jacob Solem, who is both, um, you know, a deep expert on um, drugs and drug policy, who also is our Michael Bloomberg beat reporter. Uh, And -hmm. that's one way of keeping our individual journalists both plugged in and also not frustrated by constantly chasing the news cycle, um, but also kind of winds up with the product overall being something that you can engage with on whatever level you're most preoccupied by. Video, of course, is harder to produce. You can't turn around a video on a dime and have it be a high-quality video. So those are often things that we look for that have a little bit of a longer tail. Here's the whole story of Bernie Sanders' engagement with the Soviet Union. Here's a total um, start-to-finish narrative about someone who's battling with California zoning and housing bureaucrats, you know, that kind of thing, where we're looking, you know, there to interact with people who like storytelling, that kind of thing. Um, We do try really hard to always have investigative stories going for the long term as well that don't touch politics at all. So this is often the work of someone like C.J. Ciramella or Eric Baim, who are some of our in-house reporters who just file a thousand Freedom of Information Act requests and wait to see what comes back. Mm -hmm. And um, and we get some of our best stuff from those. You know, when I I'll, I'll post articles from Reason, and sometimes the flack I get from like my friends on the right or the left would be something like, "Well, they're a libertarian magazine. You can't, you know, we we need a we need something more objective for for us to believe that what they're reporting on is true." I'm I'm guessing you've sort of heard that as well. That like, oh well, because yeah. you have a bias, you can't you can't you can't possibly be objective. So how do you how do you handle those objections? Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent you know, that's going to be a hard line for some people, that there really are people who see the news as something that can be provided from a kind of omniscient third-person perspective. I personally am deeply skeptical about that. I believe that there are things that are true and things that are false, and there are things that can be found out through reporting and research uh, that should be shared with the public. But I don't believe that you can be a bias-free automaton locating Mm -hmm. and dispersing that information. And I think to pretend that you are is to not be fully honest with your readers. So one thing that we do at Reason is it is almost impossible to engage with any of our content without knowing who we are. I mean, the name of the magazine, which obviously dates back to our founding in 1968, is a little bit uh, peculiar. I think people sometimes don't really know what to expect when they hear reason, but our our motto, free minds and free markets, is right there on everything we do. 
And we're not shy about about having a bias. And I think that lets people gauge how they kind of process the information that we give them. So, for example, if we run a story where we say, hey, the Libertarian Party is really struggling to cultivate strong candidates in 2020, our libertarian bias is relevant there in the opposite direction you might expect, right? You might say like, oh, we would have assumed these people would be pulling for the LP. And if they're being critical, we should take that criticism double seriously. Um, Like that kind of thing, I think, can be undervalued when people talk about this question. And I think there really is a myth that there was some magical point in the mid-20th century when news was objective, right? We have this, this sort of fantasy of Walter Cronkite saying, you know, and that's the way it is and all of America <laughs> believing him. But if you look back at that era, that wasn't the way it was. I mean, the, you know, the, the, right, yeah. the, what we now call the mainstream media, what was then just the media, missed huge stories and misreported huge stories and covered for politicians because they were friends and were part of the vested interest and the ruling class. And there's there are a bunch of ways without even getting to social justice where you can say those guys were telling the whole story and and to pretend that they were or that we could somehow go back to that and that would be better really right. misses the point. Well, I mean, that also sort of, in my mind, leads to the unique libertarian advantage is that, you know, the, like the the one way one way to put it is like, you know, as a libertarian, we get to enjoy watching the scandals on both sides of the aisle. Um, the other is that, you know, something similar to what you mentioned earlier about fact checking, you know, if you're if you're mildly disagreeing with somebody, um, the you, the libertarian perspective is that there's a lot to watch out for in in politics and we're going to keep our eye out. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that basically trust no one, first of all, is uh, is part of where we are. The other thing that I think we do in general is we go looking for stories where other people might not look. Um, and that means, for instance, like our work on Kamala Harris's candidacy was very focused right from the beginning on her record as a prosecutor because we looked at this person who was saying – I've always been a progressive. I've always, you know, looked out for the for the least well off. I've always done my part to help the downtrodden. And you you say, you know what? That doesn't sound super compatible to me with what I understand about the record of California prosecutors during the period that she was doing that job. Let's go look. Mm-hmm. And you know, later in the campaign, a lot of people were looking there and examining that record. And Tulsi Gabbard even wound up kind of taking Harris to task on the debate stage for some of that record. But we were there very early because our libertarian instincts said, go look and see what she was doing when truancy laws were kicking into place and go look and see what she was doing about, you know, sentencing. And there was just a lot of places where we immediately and instinctively knew to go digging that the rest of the press eventually came along, but might not have gone there on their own if there hadn't been people like us and also other people in the criminal justice space. Um, Many of the the relevant groups are, you know, liberal advocacy groups um, who were pointing to concerns in that area. How do you think your your role, reason more specifically, his role in the libertarian movement is promoting human flourishing? You know, that's a, such a good question to kind of wake up and do your daily meditation on. And I think in some ways, <laughs> in some ways, it's too big of a question, right? What what are you what did you do today to promote human flourishing? Like, I don't know. My God, like I I try not to lose my patience with my children and or my. <laughs> reporters like I, you know, but 
Um, but I think on the bigger level, there is, um, you know, there have been different functions that reason has performed. Um, and, you know, one thing that we think about a lot here is some of the stuff that we were saying in the 60s and 70s and 80s that sounded crazy then is conventional wisdom now. And I'm talking about stuff like legalization of marijuana. Mm -hmm. I mean, just that alone is such an incredible case study um, in people treating libertarians generally and certainly Reason Magazine specifically like we were absolute lunatics to think that that could change. And then it changed. And so one thing that we think a lot about is like, well, what, what can we do now that will be that same thing 20 or 30 years from now. And to me, some of our work about um, sex trafficking and decriminalization of sex work, um, you know, we have covered a very difficult topic that we've taken a lot of flack for, which is that the kind of national and international panic about sex trafficking is broadly speaking overblown. Um, Not that it never happens, but that it actually happens quite rarely and that much of the rhetoric around that is a cover for the funding of vice busts of going after people who do consensual sex work and that we think that's wrong and then that needs to change. Um, and that's something that we we take a lot of flack for and that I I hope and believe will pay off in the long run. Um, but another another place here is, is religious freedom exceptions, you know, for various kind of federal top-down rules about, for instance, you know, your basic, uh, you know, gay wedding cakes, as well as the nuns paying for contraception stuff. Like, that is another Mm -hmm. area that we spend a lot of time taking flack from people who are usually our friends because we think it's the right thing to do. And, And I'm hopeful that in the long run, that is what we're doing to promote human flourishing, is we're kind of keeping alive and consistently advocating for stuff that other people see as beyond the pale. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a certain risk there, of course, and taking flack isn't bad. Um, it might feel bad at the time. But, right. you know, when you can defend yourself through principles, then, you know, you can you keep going and doing doing what you have to do. You know, the past 20 years has seen, I mean, clearly, this is like I have to preface this this way, We've there's a huge change in the way that we consume media, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Reason clearly has adapted. I mean, you didn't have videos in the year 2000, at least very rarely, right? Um, so there's, there's a lot that has changed. And it seems that, like, journalism itself has changed to a large extent. Um, you know, I remember watching the show, HBO show, The Newsroom, and, you know, seeing how the, the characters in there wanted, you know, to change the way, you know, they wanted to sort of crowdsource journalism. And there was this like tension in that show about whether or not that's important, or should we have the media elite sort of decide what the news is. And, you know, can you speak a little bit from your perspective um, on what has changed? I mean, clearly, you could take that in a lot of directions, but I'll let you decide. Yeah, I mean, I think it's helpful to have never really been accepted into the club of the media elite. So, uh, you know, National Magazine Awards notwithstanding, for the most part, Reason Magazine has never been part of the elite crew of insiders. And this is true not just among political journalists in Washington, D.C., but also um, just in general. Like when we do reader surveys, we find that the people who read us read a very, very wide and kind of quirky selection of other sources. It's not as if our audience is the same audience as, you know, ABC News or The New York Times or what have you. So the democratization of media, first of all, just benefited us to some extent because we were 
in that liminal space. We were sort of professionals who already knew how to do journalism to a high standard who had been kind of gatekept out by some of the traditionally powerful publications. Um, So it was an opportunity for us. But then, of course, as is always the case in more open markets, which is what I think journalism has essentially become, it used to be a market with more barriers to entry. And now it is a more open market, which I don't know if you know this, we're in favor of. (laughs) So, uh, you know, but of course, coming up right behind us is you know, some guy with a Twitter account. And I think it's so easy, (laughs) so easy to dismiss some guy with a Twitter account. But the fact is, particularly in countries that don't have well-developed, free and open press, some guy with a Twitter account can genuinely be moving information uh, in a way that can make a huge difference for, um, for a political outcome or for a social outcome. So I generally think it's good. I generally feel like Reason has, you know, done a pretty decent job of rolling with the punches of new media. It helps that we are structured as a nonprofit and that we can therefore make space in our daily decision making for doing something not because it's going to get the clicks or not because it's going to get the advertisers, but because it's really important to our mission. And that is like a a really, I think that's a lesson that other journalists are learning, but we learned it 40 years ago. And, you know, when you think of your ProPublicas and that kind of thing nowadays, it seems like, oh, yeah, nonprofit journalism makes sense. But that that was not the conventional wisdom mm-hmm. when when Reason first became a nonprofit. And I think we we really have benefited from it over the years. Yeah, how do you how do you handle the nonprofit status with the the political crossover? Like, you know, you don't do hit pieces on journalists or, or I mean on politicians per se. Like, you know, you, you interviewed Tulsi Gabbard, and you know, you, I'm sure you'd interview other candidates if it if it fit and it made made sense. Um, is there is there a you know I I know for us we don't we just flat out decide we don't, we're not going to interview political candidates because we don't want to threaten our five hundred one c three status. Yeah. Um, do you do you face that as well? And how do you handle that? We do. So we're thoughtful about it. I mean, there are a couple obvious boundaries on what we do. One is we don't endorse candidates, right? We don't say the magic words "vote for." Um, yeah. That's fine because we hate them all. As a general matter, <laughs> it's not a problem. Um, we, don't want, we don't want them to be voted for. <laughs> yeah, like none of the above 2020 is officially my endorsement at yeah, this point. Yeah. Um, but that's, I mean, obviously that's a bit flippant, but um, but it is true that I, I don't think it has hurt us as a political magazine and has probably actually helped us to not be in this position that so many publications are in where they have to kind of internally debate who they're going to endorse and then make this big formal statement, which no one really cares about, but which is a huge time suck internally. Better to just walk away from all that. And then when we do interview candidates, when we do reach out to candidates, we just reach out to everyone. Um, like that's, that that is the other thing you can do as a 501c3 is, you know, you can talk to no one or you can issue invitations to everyone. And we issue invitations to everyone. And, you know, unfortunately, not everyone takes us up on those invitations. But yeah. uh, but when they do, we're able to engage with them and hopefully, again, add something to the conversation. I mean, John Stossel interviewing Tulsi Gabbard produced a very different type of conversation. And I think one that was really interesting for our viewers and readers than you would have gotten from a different outlet. And so we're kind of always just looking to provide that type of thing. But um, we do all disclose who we vote for individually. And that's something that um, we are almost alone in doing. 
Um, Slate has done it in past years. Um, I think some other like Barstool Sports or Deadspin or one of those sites actually does it, which is yeah. awesome and weird. Um, but it's not mandatory. Uh, writers do not have to participate if they don't want to. But again, this is part of our process of saying we want you to know who is writing your stories. We want you to know who is providing your news. And here at Reason, we're going to tell you who we're voting for. Um, and all of us just do that in, you know, major elections. And we just put it out there for readers to decide how they want to use that information to handicap what they're reading every day. So when I was when I was growing up, I grew up in a pretty... Um pretty secluded area of the country. And the kind of news that we uh, received was sort of like really conservative Christian radio. And the way in which we were delivered the news, I think sort of, I think sort of messed me up. And so I, I go into listening to the news now with a little bit of like skepticism, because I'm like, I'm always aware of, you know, bias and so forth. At the same time, I have, I have learned over the past like 15 years that I am somewhat susceptible to reading an article and not realizing that it's not quite, and I realized we'd talked about the objective piece of things. Mm -hmm. um, like there's nothing, no such thing as like 100% pure objective journalism. Um, but it seems like I'm, I, you know, I read these and I'm like, I really have to double check myself. I'm like, am I just buying into this? Are they making an argument? Is this propaganda versus is this just like reporting information and just giving me the facts? And then, you know, we're now, you know, the buzzword of the last several years has been fake news. And there's just, I, I guess the simplify the question here is there's a lot of misinformation out there and there's a lot of fake news sites, whatever that means. Um, Maybe it's a meaningless statement, but how do you, <laughs> what's your advice for people like me who struggle with discerning what, what do I, how do I decide this is worth reading? This is worth believing even when you so, read any particular piece. I think there are a couple ways you can tell one, which, you know, maybe this is a, a little bit too basic, but one is to look and see if the piece links out to original sources or extensively cites original sources. To me, like that is one thing that I, if I encounter a site that I don't know well uh, and I go, you know, I, I sort of find a claim in an article to seem like, to be an outlier or to be sort of strikingly weird, the first thing I'm going to do is look and see, well, did this journalist give me the breadcrumbs to check the fact myself, to check what they're claiming myself. And any responsible journalist, especially someone who's doing original reporting, should make available the, you know, the the documents and tools that they use to come to that conclusion. Now, of course, there are exceptions. Sometimes you get something confidentially, but in that case, it should still be clear in the article. You know, this information is from documents obtained in such and such a way, secretly, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Um, so I think first, just like sourcing, you know, link to the bill, a link to the quote, a link to the legal documents or the court case or whatever it is, um, is a huge part of it. And then the other thing that uh, that I look for when I'm looking at an unfamiliar news source is um, it actually is pretty easy to see reputationally. Like there are a bunch of third-party tools that you can put in your browser that let you look at the kind of reliability and trustworthiness of a site. Um, so I don't even have a particular one that I strongly recommend. There are, there are many out there. Um, those tools themselves have biases, of course. Uh, so there mm -hmm. is a little bit of like turtles all the way down. But, um, <laughs> but I think you can, you know, you can sort of, you can, if you want to kind of automate that process, 
download um, browser extensions that will just give you a little green check mark, yellow check mark, red check mark on on different sites, yeah. um, which I which I find valuable. I mean, I I am always looking for ways to have robots solve my problems, and uh, <laughs> and this is this is one way in which robots can solve my problems. Now there are people who are worried about that, right? There are people who say, yeah. well, I don't want you know, Jack from Twitter or Mark Zuckerberg or, you know, the Google algorithm to make these judgments for me about what's trustworthy and what isn't. Um, I'm sympathetic to that. But I frankly think if I'm choosing between just trusting whoever has the fanciest job title at the New York Times versus the Google algorithm as shaped by my browsing habits, I'll take the latter. I mean, robots yeah. aren't perfect, but neither are humans. Yeah, well, you know, there's the there's the conspiracy side that's like, oh, well, you know, there's a conspiracy so that you will read with the browser, you know, the fact-checking browser plugins that are like, oh, well, they're going to... That's like part of the denial of using them. It's like, well, because they're going to just sort of be biased, everything's biased, you know, you have to read it from this source or it's not trustworthy, that becomes, you know, highly skeptical in my world too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And and people are right to be skeptical. You should you should approach news sources with with skepticism, but I do think what you were referencing earlier is true that discovering that a news source has a point of view is not the same thing as discovering that it's not trustworthy. And I think that's a confusion that is persistent and weirdly robust in the American psyche and that it is worth interrogating that and breaking it down that you can get good, trustworthy, valuable information from a source that is also mission-driven, that also has an agenda. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, we've, we've already talked about this, but I think the agenda sort of being up front can be a benefit because then you're not hiding something behind what you're trying to do. And right. People, people mist, mistrust you if it, if it turns out that they didn't realize this when you, instead of being right up front. And that's something I certainly appreciate about Reason. Do you think we're living in a in an age of fake news, or is that kind of an overblown idea? Or like, what are your thoughts there? I think we've always been living in an age of fake news. I am very much, uh, as you alluded to earlier, I'm very much of the view that things, broadly speaking, are getting better and better. Uh, I know that it can be a struggle to hold on to that notion, you know, this week, for instance, when it seems like politics is sort of a nightmare and maybe there's a pandemic and also... It's the weather is weird. I mean, I, I get it. It's, it's you know, it is very, very hard and, and ultimately very unsatisfying to say, statistically speaking, your current fears will probably not be realized, right? Like, that's a tough conversation to have. But I think the fake <laughs> news thing, the fake news thing is kind of like that. Uh, you know, Reason, um, back in the very early days of our video project, about 10 years ago now, put out a video that was a parody campaign ad between, and it was a Jefferson, a Thomas Jefferson campaign ad and a John Adams campaign ad, and using their own words, contemporaneous from the time, uh, but doing it in the style of a modern television campaign ad. And it was like, you know, absolutely scorchingly cruel and false. And, you know, I, I, I won't do it justice to quote it, but, uh, but it's, you know, the accusations of treason and infidelity and just, <laughs> you know, truly cruel words. Once you've seen that, it's very, very hard to say politics right now is 
you know, worse than it's ever been or political rhetoric is worse than it's ever been. It's hard to say there's more false information floating around than there's ever been. And there is some, there's some good uh, social scientific statistical work that shows that while it is true that the the velocity of information has increased and the velocity of fake news has increased, that the velocity of debunking has also increased, that people, when they believe something false, they don't necessarily believe it for as long as they used to, and that, in fact, many of the traditional conspiracy theories, you know, JFK and this kind of thing, those have actually taken a beating in the era of the Internet because um, it becomes easier to sort of quickly share debunking. Um, and we've we've run some work by uh, a guy named Yuzinski in our pages who um, has done some really cool quantitative investigations into that stuff. So we can't have a conversation about journalism without talking about how this other guy with a Twitter account has affected the way we report the news. Um, how's Trump changed things? Uh, I don't know. Trump's changed everything, <laughs> I guess. Um, you know, I think the fact that much of the Democratic primary is currently being conducted around the question of whether or not we should try to go back to normal, um, that essentially Joe Biden is running on the I'll make it the way it was before Donald Trump was president ticket is interesting and revealing to me. Uh, my colleague Nick Gillespie has a whole rap about how in some ways Trump has been good because he's demystified the presidency, essentially uh, by tweeting his every passing thought. He has punctured the illusion that presidents are kind of godlike or superhuman or deserving yeah, yeah. of more than ordinary respect. Uh, there's probably something to that. Um, on the other hand, my I'm colleague... I'm very sympathetic to that view. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, my colleague Nick Gillespie has also written movingly about how societies with lower trust function less well and have more demand for government. So basically, if you convince everyone that all of their institutions are kind of a sham, they don't say, ah, very good, then we will return to a minarchist utopia. They say... Mm save us from our problems, oh, powerful executives. So I, I think those two insights are a little bit pulling against each other. Um, I struggle between those two points. And I, I wonder, as a libertarian, whether, um, you know, the, the total death, the total abandonment of even the slightest rhetoric around fiscal discipline under Trump um, might not be the most damaging thing of all. I mean, I you know, he simply hasn't made it a priority, doesn't really see it as part of his agenda. Deregulation is there, and I appreciate that, and I think he's done some really valuable work on that front. But overall, the total departure from any rhetoric around the notion that private actors can help each other out and should, uh, and that we should prefer that to state action in part because to tax people heavily, to take away their resources in order to give them to the state to do what the state thinks is right, historically has not had very good outcomes. And, um, you know, in some cases, like, for instance, public schools has actively harmed the people that are supposed to be benefiting. Like, that has disappeared from the Republican Party's rhetoric. I look forward to it coming back under Bernie Sanders' presidency, I guess. <laughs> but, um, you know, that is a thing that, it was a long-term trend. I do not blame Trump for that alone, but he certainly does seem to have dealt the death blow, and, and that's a real loss to me. 
One of, one of the arguments in favor of Trump for, by people who were like comparing him to Hillary and worried about the way in which she would conduct affairs as president is that, well, the media really doesn't like Trump and therefore he won't get away with as much. And so there's this sort of like, there, there's a media question in there. It's like, well, can the media really do that? Like, are they really going to be that hawkish on him? And I mean, clearly they've been very anti-Trump in a lot of ways, the mainstream media. Did you give any stock to that sort of theory that like it's probably better? It's very similar to Gillespie's, you know, thesis there that we just talked about. It's like, well, Trump's going to, you know, open, you know, we're going to see more of this. And so therefore he won't get away with as much, even though he's probably equally as bad. Yeah, I think that that while that theoretically has some value as an argument, in fact, the sheer volume of malfeasance coming out of the Trump administration has like overwhelmed that theory, right? Like mm. if everyone was doing 10 bad things, I if each president was going to do 10 bad things, I agree that the press was probably more likely to ferret out nine of Trump's as opposed to only six of Obama's. That's true. But uh, my sense of the executive overreach as well as the disregard for, you know, some of the kind of formalisms of the bureaucracy at some point, it's it's so many. I mean, I, I know I have scandal exhaustion. Um, when we do when we do story meetings, you know, we often say, "Listen, in any other administration, this would be a three day story, but we don't have time." And I'm thinking here of stuff like the you know the cabinet the cabinet official spending scandals, right, which have mostly abated at this point. Not, I think, because cabinet officials are no longer buying $30,000 conference tables, but because we just don't have time to talk about it. I think the same is true with foreign policy. You know, a particular gaffe or overly bold statement or overly aggressive posturing that would have gotten a week's worth of scrutiny and analysis now passes in the blink of an eye because there's something else to move along to. Yeah. So it's a little it's a little hard for me to it's a little hard for me to judge that. I do think the press went way too easy on Obama and on his predecessors as well for doing a lot of things that as a libertarian I found genuinely horrifying including his use of unmanned drones, including record levels of border enforcement and you know several other things that under a Republican administration definitely would have gotten more scrutiny and would have deserved it. Yeah. So I have just a couple more questions here just to wrap up. What is your most rewarding part of being editor-in-chief? Hmm, that's a good question. You know, I don't know if this is, I'll, I'll say this one just because it comes to mind. Um, there's nothing that I love more than encountering readers who have been reading Reason longer than I have been alive. Um, and there really <laughs> are a, quite a lot of these guys. And, you you know, you run into them at, you know, Freedom Fest in Las Vegas where we typically have a, a presence um, at other types of conferences, you know, you'll be at the Reason table or I'll speak and then people come up to me afterward and say, you know, I subscribed to Reason in 1973. I subscribed to Reason. And, and it's, uh, wow, it's great. It's like such a gratifying thing to know that we've been a part of these people's lives for so long uh, and that now I'm a part of that. Like that, that to yeah, me yeah. is just like a really cool because libertarians don't have a deep history. I mean, on, on one level, we do, right? You could say, "Listen, we're we're going back to the Enlightenment. At least we are we are part of a proud tradition of classical liberalism. Uh, we are, uh, you know, we are Adam Smith. We are 
uh, we are Friedrich Hayek. Of course, that is a narrative that I basically buy into and believe to be true. But on the other hand, the word libertarian is not very old. American libertarianism, certainly the, liber- you know, the Libertarian Party was founded after the founding of Reason Magazine. Uh, we don't have a lot of history necessarily to draw on. And so I always find it very heartening to run into these people who were kind of there from the beginning with Reason, um, who are still engaged with the magazine, who still like to read it, and who often have very pointed criticisms about some specific article <laughs> they just read, which I love. Yeah, no, that's, that's good kind of feedback. That's good. Um, am I right that I've heard in some of your um, Reason Roundtable episodes that you have a fascination with rockets? That is correct. I am a and big, can, uh, I'm I would a big love space to know more nerd. About that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is um, it's part and parcel of the kind of general optimism that I have, um, and also, you know, I do think of myself as being very American, being a very American libertarian, um, and I think one of the things that makes America great, to coin a phrase is, um, was the sort of the frontier, the sense of a frontier, having a frontier, I think is so, so valuable for encouraging the kind of innovation and creativity and rule breaking that moves society forward. And also that provides refuge to people who are not welcome in society as it is currently constituted. And so my interest in space, not to sound like a lunatic, because this does sound crazy to a lot of people, is fundamentally an interest in space as a frontier. You know, I think it would be very fun to go to space as tourism, and I think that's what's going to happen first. Um, But when I am watching the work of Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson uh, and others who are players in the very vibrant private launch sector, uh, what I am watching them for predominantly is something that's a little further down the road, something that's you know, that looks more like colonization or a new way of living, a new way of kind of building a secondary society outside of Mm -hmm. the one we have. And the fact that there is a private launch industry, by the way, is another example of something that Reason has been writing about for decades that sounded crazy. Only NASA can do space. Only the Apollo program gets us to the moon. You know, there was this very, you know, if we we can put a man on the moon, then we can cure cancer. Like this space as a metaphor for government is such a longstanding association. And the fact that actually all it took was like a couple highly motivated billionaires and we're back, you know, the United States is back in the space game, not because of something that a government agency did. Yeah. Well, so that I do have to follow up with, um, if if you were defunding the entire federal government, would NASA be the last item on the list then? Oh, no. NASA's first. Are you kidding oh, okay. me? You're, no, you're like I'm, really, yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I mean, like, this is actually, of course, a conversation we have all the time is, you know, people say, um, well, you're a libertarian, so you would defund thing X. Uh, there's often a conversation about, well, what would what would my priorities be? And, you know, NASA is about, one percent, a little bit less, I think, of the federal budget. So I'm not, you know, I'm not in a rush to axe NASA first. But the fact is, even though Elon Musk has, you know, even though SpaceX has NASA contracts and even though NASA does continue to be a major player in space, uh, I do not, I do not at all feel like in the absence of NASA, there would be no space exploration, just as I don't feel in the absence of most large government programs that those sectors would be abandoned. 
All right. Well, I, you know, it's it, your your answer about the frontier uh, is fascinating, and I think we'll we'll leave uh, we'll leave the interview at that. Catherine, thanks for joining us for the podcast. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.